Amen. All right, well, we're there in uh, Leviticus chapter number uh, 3. Leviticus chapter number 3. And uh, if you remember, we've been going through the book of Leviticus now. This is our third week. We're in the third chapter. And in Leviticus chapter 1, we've, uh, we've been talking about the different sacrifices that you can uh, learn about through these chapters. In Leviticus chapter 1, we learned about the burnt offering, and we saw that the burnt offering was an offering given to God that was completely uh, given to the Lord. And then in chapter 2, we saw the, the meat offering. And if you remember, we learned about the fact that the word meat in the Bible is just a reference to food. And in fact, the meat offering uh, is, it has, has no flesh in it. It was a bread, uh, like a cake, that was offered to the Lord. And the, the meat offering was unique in the sense that it was the only one of the offerings that there's no shedding of blood. There was no animal that was put to death. Now, in chapter 3, we go back to this idea of shedding blood and of killing an animal. And we are looking at tonight the peace offering in Leviticus chapter 3. And if you look at verse 1, the Bible says this, and his oblation, and the word oblation simply is a reference to an offering or something that's given, says, and his oblation be a sacrifice of peace offering. So that's what, we, that's what Leviticus chapter 3 is about. It's about the peace offering. That's what we'll be looking at. It says, if his oblation be a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offer it of the herd, whether it be a male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. Now, I, w- I want to say this, and, I, and I, I, I want to show you several things in regards to this peace offering, but in order to do that, I kind of have to lay the foundation about what a peace offering is and uh, the characteristics of a peace offering, uh, because most people probably aren't too familiar with how these offerings work. So I'm, I want to make several statements to try to help you understand a little bit of the peace offering, and if this is something you're interested in studying and learning about, I'd encourage you to write these statements down. The first statement is this, the peace offering is similar and yet different than the the burnt offering. And I I want you to understand that because the meat offering was a a cake, it was a a wafer, it was a bread that was given to God. But of, of the three offerings that we've dealt with so far, two of them are sacrifice offerings and they are similar uh, and they are connected, but they are different. So let me just explain to you, just kind of by, by way of introduction, how the peace offering is similar to the burnt offering. If you look down at verse number one, we just read it. Uh, I want you to notice, and, and, and if you re- hopefully you remember it from last week, because I don't want to go back and, and look at all the passages about the burnt offering. Excuse me, not last week, but the week before that. But the peace offering is similar to the burnt offering in the sense that you had several options. Do you remember back in Leviticus 1, and we don't have to look at it, but do you remember when it came to the burnt offering, he gave you three different options for how to give the offering. You could do it of the herd, you could do it of the flocks, or you could do it of the fowls. Well, the peace offering is similar to that in the sense that you get different options. Look at verse 1 again. It says, and if his oblation be a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offer it, notice option number one, of the herd. So you can offer it of the herd, whether it be male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. If you skip down to verse number six, notice the second option. And if his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering unto the Lord be of the flock. All right, so you could do it of the herd, which would be like an ox or a cow or a bull, or you could do it of the flock, which would be like a goat or a, a, a lamb. 
And in fact, the goats, uh, a goat is mentioned later on. Here we're told it's male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. So the peace offering is similar to the burnt offering in the sense that you were given several options in regards to how you could give it. It's also similar in the sense that both offerings had to be given without blemish. Look at verse 1 again. Notice what he says. Uh, it says, be a male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If you look at the last part of verse number 6, it says, offer it without blemish. And again, I'm not going to go back and show you all the verses, but we talked about it before, how that blemish uh, is a picture of sin. And it represents the fact that Christ was given without blemish. Christ was given it uh, with, with no uh, blemish of sin. And the burnt offering, according to Leviticus 1 and verse 3, is also to be given without a blemish. Uh, a third thing that you can consider in regards to the similarity between the peace offering and the burnt offering is that both were uh, put to death by the one that was given the sacrifice. We saw that in Leviticus 1 verses 3 through 5 about the burnt offering. But I want you to notice it's the same principle for the peace offering. If you look at verse 2, notice what it says. And he, that's the one that's bringing the offering, shall lay his hand upon the head of his offering and kill it at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle the blood upon the altar round about. So I want you to notice that there are some similarities between the peace offering and the burnt offering. And you need to understand that because these offerings are connected. So you need to understand that there are similarities there for a reason. And, and, and all of these offerings, in some sense, have some similarity. But I also want you to notice that there are some differences between the burnt offering and the peace offering. Let me give you some of those differences. The, one of the differences is the fact that with the peace offering, you could, off, you could offer either male or female. If you look at verse 1 again, it says, whether it be a male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. When it came to the burnt offering, you did not have that option. You were only allowed to give a male uh, without blemish. Another difference between the peace offering and the burnt offering is that the entire sacrifice was not given to God. If you look at verse 3, Leviticus chapter 3 and verse 3, notice what he says. And I'm just trying to give, lay a little bit of a foundation. We'll get into some uh, more interesting things here in a minute. But notice verse 3. And he shall offer of the sacrifice of the peace offering, an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Notice what they are to give. The fat that covereth the inwards, and all the fat that is upon the inwards, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is on them, which is by the flanks, and the call above the liver with the kidneys, it shall he take away. So he says those are the parts of the animal that he was to remove and that he was to sacrifice uh, to God. So only the fat, only the kidneys, only the call was, was given to the Lord, where the burnt offering, the Bible says that the whole thing, the, the, they were commanded to burn all on the altar. So there's some differences there. So I want you to understand, when it comes to the burnt offerings and the peace offering, there are some similarities, but yet there are some differences. Now, you may be wondering, why, why are you making a big deal about showing us that? And it's because of this, all right? So point number one is the peace offering is similar and yet different than the burnt offering. But here's point number two, or statement number two I'd like you to write down to kind of understand the peace offering. The peace offering is connected to and always follows the burnt offering. So not only is the burnt offering and the peace offering similar, yet different, it is also connected to and always follows the burnt offering. And here's what I mean by that. When you, when you offered a peace offering, you would always offer a peace offering along with a burnt offering. 
These two offerings are connected because they're always given together, the burnt offering first and then following the peace offering. Let me uh, show it to you from the Bible. Look at verse number 5, Leviticus chapter 3 and verse 5. Notice what it says. And Aaron's sons shall burn it. Now, we're in Leviticus 3, so we're talking about the peace offering. He said, Aaron's sons shall burn it, the peace offering, on the altar. Notice this word, upon the burnt sacrifice. So the burnt sacrifice has been given, and then they are commanded to give the peace offering upon or on top of the burnt offering, which is upon the wood that is on the fire. Uh, and so, so the instructions there are that you give the burnt offering, right? That's the, the whole thing is given to God. You can give an ox, you can give a bull, you can give a goat, you can give a lamb, you can give a, a fowl, but the whole thing gets consumed to God. And once that fire is going, then you can give a peace offering and you are to, doing, you, you are to do it upon the burnt sacrifice. Let me give you another reference just to prove it even more clearly. Go to Leviticus chapter 6. Look at verse 12. Leviticus chapter 6. So they were instructed that the peace offering was to be given along with and really on top of the burnt offering. So these offerings are connected. They're given at the same time. Leviticus chapter 6. Look at verse 12. Leviticus chapter 6 and verse 12. Notice what the Bible says. And the fire upon the altars shall be burning in it. It shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order upon it. All right? So he's telling them they're supposed to get the wood going, they're supposed to get the fire going, and then they're supposed to lay the burnt offering in order upon it, and he shall burn thereon the fat of the peace offering. So I want you to notice, he's telling you, you burn the fat of the, pre, of the peace offering thereon, or on with the burnt offering. And you'll, you'll notice, if you study out through the Bible, you'll notice that when the burnt offering is mentioned, the peace offering is always mentioned alongside with it. In fact, I, I want to give you some examples just so you can see it. Go with me to the book of 1 Samuel. You're there in Leviticus. You're going to go past Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. And we could go to anywhere in the Bible to show you this because it, it's all throughout the Bible. I'm just going to give you a few references out of 1st and 2nd Samuel just to prove the point. But I want you to understand that the peace offering and the burnt offering are always given together. The burnt offering first, the peace offering second, the burnt offering first, the peace offering on top of, upon, thereupon, the burnt offering. Are you there in 1st Samuel? Look at chapter 10 and verse number 8. I just want to give you some examples, and we could have done it out of Exodus, we could have done it out of anywhere, but I just want you to notice how you'll find that these are always connected in Scripture. 1st Samuel chapter 10, look at verse 8. 1st Samuel 10 and verse 8, the Bible says this, And thou shalt go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down unto thee to offer burnt offerings. You see that? So he says, I'm going to offer burnt offerings. And then notice what he says. And to sacrifice, sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days shalt thou tarry till I come to thee and show thee what thou shalt do. So here he says, I want to give a burnt offering. And then in the same breath, he says, and to sacrifice, sacrifices peace offerings. You're there in 1 Samuel 10. Go to 1 Samuel 13. Just a couple of pages over and look at verse number 9. 1 Samuel chapter number 13 and look at verse number 9. 1 Samuel 13, 9. Notice what the Bible says. And Saul said, bring hither a burnt offering to me. Now, Saul was not supposed to give the burnt, do the burnt offering. He got in trouble for this. But I want you to notice what he does. He says, uh, bring hither the burnt offering to me and 
peace offering. So notice, he asked for the burnt offering and peace offerings. Why? Because these two offerings are connected. They're given at the same time. They're, brought, uh, they're, they're offered to the Lord at the same time. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 6, look at verse 17. You're there in 1 Samuel, just flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 6, and look at verse number 17. 2 Samuel 6, 17. Notice what the Bible says. And they brought in the ark of the Lord, and set it in his place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it, and David, notice, David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So I've just, I, 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 want to, I want you to just see that in Scripture, you offer a burnt offering and a peace offering. You offer these together. Look at verse 18, same chapter. As soon as David had made an end of offering, burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Go to chapter 24 and verse number 25. Chapter 24 and verse number 25. Notice what the Bible says. 2 Samuel 24 and verse 25. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was entreated for the land and the plague was stayed from Israel. So again, when you see the burnt offering given, you see the peace offering given. Why? Because the instructions given, given to the priest is that they are to give the peace offering upon the burnt offering or they are to, to, to do it thereon. Uh, they, this is something that's given together. So, uh, number one, the peace offering is similar, but yet different than the burnt offering. Number two, the peace offering is connected to and always follows the burnt offering. Number three, the peace offering provides fellowship after the burnt offering provides reconciliation. The peace offering provides fellowship after the burnt offering provides reconciliation. Go back to Leviticus chapter 3. And, and I want to say this. I think usually when we think of, the, of peace offering, you know, that's a term that's often used uh, even in our, in our culture. You know, uh, uh, a wife might be upset at her husband or a husband might be upset with her wife and, 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 and the offending spouse may bring, you know, uh, chocolates or may bring uh, uh, flowers or something and, and, may, and, and they, they'll say, here's a peace offering, right? You know, I want to I make peace. But here's what you got to understand. The idea with a peace offering uh, in that sense is that we're offering something in order to make peace. That's not the peace offering in the Bible. The peace offering in the Bible is not that we give something in order to get peace, is that we give this because we have peace, all right? It is the burnt offering that reconciles. It is the burnt offering that has taken the wrath of God. And because the wrath has been satisfi satisfied, then with the burnt offering, we can give a peace offering, which is about fellowship which is about fellowshipping with God and about fellowshipping with others. You say, uh, you know, where do we see that in the Bible? Look at Leviticus chapter 3, look at verse 11. Leviticus chapter 3, verse 11. And the priest shall burn it upon the altar. Talking about the peace offering. Notice how it is described. It is the food. It is the food of the offering made by fire. Now, food for who? Notice what it says. Unto the Lord. See, the peace offering represents a meal that the giver and the priest and God have together and they cut the offering in parts. Part of it goes to God. The fat, the kidneys, the call, and there's other descriptions given in regards to, uh, as to what they're going to give it. And what's interesting is it's burnt up. Okay, God doesn't physically eat it, but they say 
here, here God, we're going to have a meal. Here's your plate. Here's your food. We're going to fellowship together, and it's given to God. It is the food of the offering made by fire unto the Lord. So you, you need to picture that after you've given the burnt offering, the reconciliation has been made, the forgiveness of your sins has been done, then we want to fellowship with God. And what's the best way to fellowship is to have a meal together. They're going to have a meal with God, and they give God His plate first. And it's referred to there as food. But notice, it's not only God who eats, it's also the people. Go, go to Leviticus chapter 7. Look at verse 15. Leviticus chapter 7, verse number 15. Leviticus chapter 7 and verse 15. Notice what it says. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings. Alright, so we're talking about the flesh that's left over that didn't get burned up. The flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving. You see that word thanksgiving there? Why don't you just make note of that, alright? Notice what it says. And the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day that it is offered. Do you see that? So when they give the burnt offering, the whole thing gets burnt up to God. But when they give the peace offering, only part of it gets burnt, God gets his portion, God gets his plate, and then the rest, the priests and the people are allowed to eat, but there's a rule, you've got to eat it immediately. You've got to eat it the same day. Notice verse 15. It shall be eaten the same day that it is offered. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. Now, here's the thing. If you gave a fowl, right, it's probably not, or, um, excuse me, a fowl's not even allowed to be given the peace offering. If you give a fowl, you can give a fowl for the burnt offering. If you give like a goat or a sheep for, a, for the peace offering, all right, you give God his portion, then you have some left over, you and your family and the priest may be able to eat all that meat in one day. But if you give an ox or a cow, you know, or a bull, that's a lot of meat to eat in one day. So notice in verse 16 what God says, But if the sacrifice of his offering be a vow or a voluntary offering, it shall be eaten the same day that he offered the sacrifice. He said, I want you to try to eat it the same day. I want you to try to eat it right then and there. And, notice, and on the morrow, also the remainder of it shall be eaten. He said, if you can't eat a whole cow, I get that. You know, you can't eat a whole bull, I get that. He said, you can eat it the, the next day. But here's what I want you to understand. The peace offering provided fellowship after the burnt offering. The burnt offering brought reconciliation. The priest offering brought fellowship. And it was meant to be a meal. You gave God his plate of food and then you had your plate of food and you fellowship with the priest. You fellowship with God. You fellowship in the fact that your relationship had been reconciled with God. And the best way to think of it, if you look at verse 15, notice what it says, and the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering, notice what it says, for thanksgiving. All right. Now this is not theologically correct, but I, I want to just help you understand. You know, the best way to think of it is to think of it like what we celebrate as Thanksgiving. Now, when I was a kid, I was taught the history of Thanksgiving, and I'm sure that's incorrect, all right? I'm, you know, and I'm going to tell this, I'm going to say this, and somebody's going to come up to me and say, don't you know that the Masons were, and whatever, okay, that's fine. But, but, you know, we were taught about Thanksgiving, right? And what were we taught? You know, the, the, just the, the normal, non-conspiracy theory view of Thanksgiving, which I know is not popular here, all right? But what is the normal view of Thanksgiving? You have these pilgrims fighting with these Indians, right? And they finally were able to have peace 
They finally came to the place where they were no longer fighting, and they celebrated that peace by having a meal of thanksgiving. In fact, they probably got that from Leviticus. If it even happened, if the Masons didn't mess it up or whatever. Okay, don't tell me your story, I don't care. But here's the thing. That, that's the idea, and that's what's going on here. We were at odds with God. We were with, at enmity with God. But reconciliation was made through the burnt offering, and now we can offer a peace offering or an offering of thanksgiving. We can have a thanksgiving meal with God. We can fellowship with God and with each other as a result of the peace offering. So here's what we've learned so far. The peace offering is similar and yet different to the burnt offering. The peace offering is connected to and always follows the burnt offering. And number three, the peace offering provides fellowship after the burnt offering provides reconciliation. You say, why is that important? Here's why it's important. The peace offering, for those of you that like to write these statements down, here's statement number four. The peace offering and the burnt offering illustrate New Testament concepts. The peace offering and the burnt offering both illustrate New Testament concepts. And here's what I want you to understand. They both illustrate the first and second coming of Christ. These are two pictures of the first and second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me try to show it to you quickly tonight. We won't, I'll try not to be very long, but you know, whenever you start getting into end times prophecy, things maybe go a little longer. You're there, are you there in Leviticus 7? Look at verse 17. Now, if you remember verse 16, they were told, you can eat it on the morrow, also the remainder of it shall be eaten, right? So you, he wants you to eat the first day, but if you don't finish it the first day, then you're allowed to finish it the second day. But notice what you're not allowed to do, verse 17. But the remainder of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burnt with fire. He says, look, if you don't eat it in the first two days, I don't want you eating it on the third day or after the third day. He said, whatever's left over, just throw it on there and burn it with fire. Notice verse 18. And if any man of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering be eaten at all on the third day, it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be imputed unto him that offereth it. It shall be an abomination. The soul that eateth of it shall bear his iniquity. Now, there, there are some practical reasons why God said that. I'm sure he's trying to teach the children of Israel Look, you don't want to eat that hamburger once it's been sitting there for three days, okay? And I, I'm sure there's some practical reasons for that, and there's, uh, uh, you know, uh, some, some, all of this in the Old Testament. He's given them, uh, you know, things that are for their health and things of that nature. But here he says, look, when you give the peace offering, now the burnt offering, the whole thing gets, gets burnt up. But when you give the peace offering, he said you give God his plate, you let him have his meal, and then you eat. What you can the first day, and if you have anything left over, you eat what you can the second day. And then if you have anything left over, he said, on that third day, I don't want you to eat it anymore. He said, it's gone bad. He said, it's not good. He said, go ahead and burn it up. He says, it's an abomination. The soul that eateth of it shall bear his iniquity. Go to the book of Acts, Acts chapter number 2. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Acts chapter 2. And this pictures and illustrates the first coming of our Lord. Because when the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth, what did He come to do? The Bible says He came to seek and to save that which was lost. The Bible says that He came to give Himself as a sacrifice. In fact, He said, you know, that He would lay down His life, that He would give Himself as a sacrifice, and we know that He pictures the Passover and, 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 and the Passover lamb and all those things. You're there in Acts chapter 2. Look at verse number 27. Acts 2.27, this is in reference to the, the resurrection, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And I want you to notice what the Bible says. 
Because I will not leave my soul in hell. All right, now, this is a reference, this is, this, is, this is a prophecy, this is a quoting from the Old Testament, a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ that's been fulfilled at this point through Christ. Now, I want you to notice, the Bible teaches that the soul of Christ went down to hell. Now, that's not a popular doctrine today. In fact, most Christians reject that today, and they'll say, Jesus didn't go to hell. He went to, you know, this resort, which is next to hell, called paradise. And look, that's not found in Scripture at all. You can't prove that from the Bible at all. But here's what the Bible says, that his soul went down to hell. And look, it makes sense that Jesus went to hell, because here's the thing. The wages of sin is death, okay? Now, when the Bible says the wages of his death, it's not just referring to physical death. Because the Bible tells us that the lake of fire is the second death. When they were cast into the lake of fire, it calls that the second death. So, death, first and second, is a reference to a physical and also the lake of fire going to hell. Here's the thing. There are many believers who die physically anyway. They will be resurrected. So they weren't saved from a physical death. What were they saved from when they believed on Christ? They were saved from hell. So how does it make sense that Jesus died to take our punishment, which is hell, and then he bypassed hell and didn't go there? You know, he went to a resort in the middle of the earth. It doesn't make any sense, okay? He paid for our sins in hell. His soul went down to hell. Notice Acts 27. Because that will not leave my soul in hell. Now here's what I want you to understand. His soul going down to hell is that burnt sacrifice. Completely holy given to God. Burnt up. Now notice what it says. Because that will not leave my soul in hell. That's the burnt sacrifice. But remember his soul went to hell. But what happened to his body? It was buried. All right? The body did not go to hell. Notice what it says. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. All right? And here's the reason why Jesus resurrected after three days is that so that his body would not go bad. So that his body would not see corruption. And we see that pictured through the peace offering because he says, look, don't eat it after three days. It's corrupted after three days. You know, just don't eat it anymore. But here's what he's saying. Jesus resurrected after three days. Why? So that his body would not see that corruption. So that, and, and again, his body is picturing that idea. His soul goes down as the burnt offering. His body is given as the peace offering. Look down at verse number 31, same chapter. Acts 2.31. He seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell. That's the burnt offering. Neither his flesh did see corruption. That's the peace offering. And he came back up after three days. And if you remember the story of Lazarus, remember Lazarus? Jesus went to resurrect him, and he said, hey, remove the stone, and what did they say? They say, he's going to stink. His body stinketh, right? It's not going to be good. And the Bible tells us he'd been dead for what? Four days, all right? But Jesus had been dead for three days, and then God resurrected him to keep him from having his body begin to decay, from having his body see corruption, and it's picturing that peace offering. The soul going down to hell is the burnt offering, the body above, right? Because the soul is down in the nether parts of the earth. The body buried above, 
pictures the peace offering. So we have a picture there of the burnt and the peace offering given through the first advent, the first coming of Christ. Now, here's what you need to understand. And go to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter number 34. Isaiah 34, towards the end of the Old Testament, you got those major prophets. The, big, the first big one is Isaiah. Isaiah 34. We see, number one, the picture of the first coming of Christ. And when Christ first came, he came as the lamb. He came as the sacrifice. But the burnt and peace offering also picture the second coming of Christ. Now here's what you need to understand. The next time he comes, he's not coming to be a sacrifice. He's coming to make a sacrifice. All right? He's going to be the one giving the sacrifice. And let me show you, show, show you that from Scripture. Isaiah 34, look at verse number 1. We'll just start reading from verse number 1 so you get a little bit of the context, uh, so you get the context of the chapter. Isaiah 34, verse 1, notice what it says. Come near, ye nations. Right? So who's he talking to? Talking to the nations of the world. Notice what he says. To hear and hearken, ye people, let the earth hear and all that is therein, the world and all things that come forth of it. So he's talking to the nation. He's talking to the world. Look at verse 2. For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations. Okay? So, at the time that the events of Isaiah 34 are taking place, it is when the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations. This is what we commonly refer to as God pouring down His wrath. Alright? Notice what it says. For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations, and His fury upon all their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them. Now I want you to notice. His fury is upon all their armies. All whose armies? All of the world's armies. All of the, the, the armies of the nations. Now, when in history have all the world's armies been united to fight one battle? Never happened. Hasn't happened yet. But it will happen one day. You know when? At the second coming of Christ. It's called the Battle of Armageddon. And we'll look at it here in a minute in the book of Revelation. But I want you to notice uh, verse 2. For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations, and His fear upon all their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them, and He hath delivered them to the slaughter. Notice verse 3. Their slain also shall be cast out, and their stink shall come up out of their carcasses, and the mountains... Now, Here's when you start realizing, if you didn't catch it from the all the nations uniting, here's when you start realizing that Isaiah 34 is prophetic. It's end times verbiage. All right? It's about the end times. Notice, the mountains shall be melted with their blood. Notice verse 4. And all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved. The hosts of heaven is talking about the, you know, the, the, the heavens, the sky, the atmosphere, shall be dissolved. And the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll, and their host shall fall down as the leaf falleth from off the vine, and as the falling of a fig from the fig trees. Now let me prove to you that Isaiah 34 is a prophetic passage about the second coming of Christ, about the battle of Armageddon. Keep your place there in Isaiah 34, and you need to have your place in Leviticus, because we're going to go back and forth, but go also to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter number 6. Last book in the Bible should be fairly easy to find. So you need to be in Isaiah 34, you need to be in Revelation 6, and you need to be in uh, Leviticus chapter number 3. Now if you, you're going to Revelation 6, Notice Isaiah 34 and verse 4. I want you to notice the last phrase of verse 4. As a falling fig 
from the fig tree. All right? Let me just give you a hint. Whenever you're reading the Bible, especially these Old Testament prophets, and it's real confusing and hard to sometimes get some traction when you're reading and understand what's going on. Whenever you see a fig or a fig tree or a fig tree that is giving up its figs, just realize that's, that's code word end times prophecy. That's the end of the world. That's what um, the Bible teaches. Revelation 6, look at verse 13. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 13. Notice what the Bible says. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as... Okay, the, the stars of heaven fell on the earth. Talking about the heavens, uh, you know, being dissolved. Even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. So I want you to notice, the fig tree connects Isaiah 34 and verse 4 to Revelation 6 and verse 13. But there's more. Notice, go back to Isaiah 34 and verse 4. Not only in verse 4 is a fig tree mentioned that has falling figs, just like in Revelation 6 13, a fig tree cast to their untimely figs, but also, look at Isaiah 34 and verse 4, and all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll. And the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll. Go back to Revelation 6. Now we saw in verse 13, the fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. But look at verse 14. Revelation 6, 14. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. So is there any question that Isaiah 34 and Revelation 6 are talking about the same event? Okay, the stars are falling, there's a reference to the fig trees, and both reference the fact that the heavens are rolled as a scroll. We sing that song, you know, we sing it as well, my soul, and Lord haste the day. When the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled up as a scroll. That's what it's referring to. It's referring to the day when the Lord Jesus Christ descends, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what I want you to understand, all right? Isaiah 34 is a prophetic passage about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming, which is the battle of Armageddon. Let me prove that to you. Go back to Isaiah 34. Look at verse 5. Isaiah 34. When the fig tree is shaken, when the heavens are rolled as a scroll, the Bible says in verse 5, Isaiah 34 and verse 5, For my sword shall be bathed in heaven, and it shall come down upon Edomia and upon the people of my curse to judgment. Notice verse 6. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. I want you to notice that there's an emphasis on the sword and on the blood. It says the sword of the Lord is filled with blood. Go, let's go back to Revelation. This time go to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. Now for those of you that don't already know this, what you need to understand the book of Revelation is that the book of Revelation, you can cut it in half, all right? If you cut it in half, you have the end times events going up uh, to, to uh, chapter number 11, chapters 1 through 11, and then at chapter 12, you start again. So you can often find parallel passages about the end times. For example, the 144,000 that the Jehovah's Witnesses love to make all sorts of false doctrines about, but the 144,000 are mentioned both in Revelation 7 and in Revelation 14. 
The reason that they're mentioned twice is because you get the story twice, but you get different views and different insight into it. So we saw it from Revelation 6. Now let's see the second coming of the Lord from Revelation 19. Look at verse 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. Look at verse 13. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. Notice the emphasis with blood. And his name is called the Word of God. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And the armies which were in, the, in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. Right? Notice the emphasis on the blood. Notice the emphasis on the sword. And with it, he should smite the nations. Who's he fighting? The nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And I want you to understand, usually when people read uh, verse 13 where it says, he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, people assume that that's sort of an illustration of the fact that Jesus shed his blood. You know, and it may be, but it's probably more accurate that Jesus Christ is coming down to do battle. If you look at verse 15, it says that he will... Uh, he treadeth the, the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Other passages in Isaiah tell us that he comes down on his white horse and he's literally treading upon these soldiers. I don't think it's his blood. You know, I, I think he's, he's, he's fighting and he's just, you know, he's in battle. He's fighting with his sword. But I want you to notice, all right, Isaiah 34 is about the second coming of Christ. How do we know? The fig trees, the stars are falling like the fig. The heavens are being rolled up as a scroll. That, we find that in Revelation 6 as the coming of the Lord Christ. In Revelation 19, we see the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 34, we see Him coming, and He's coming with a sword. There's blood mentioned. In, in Revelation 19, we see Him coming. He's coming with a sword. There's blood mentioned. Isaiah 34 is a prophetic passage about the battle of Armageddon. Now you say, well, okay, what's the big deal? Here's, here's the big deal. Go back to Leviticus chapter 3. Not only is Isaiah 34 prophesying about the battle of Armageddon, Isaiah 34 also pictures a burnt and peace sacrifice. You say, prove it. All right, we'll go back to Leviticus 3 and look at verse number 6. Now, we skip verses 6 through uh, 17. Uh, we, we looked at verse 11 and we looked at verse 17. But we didn't, uh, we didn't look at verse... I'm sorry, we didn't look at verse 17. We, we looked at verse 11. We, we skipped verses 6 through 10, and we skipped verses 12 through 16. And here's the reason why we didn't read them. We're going to read them right now. But we didn't read them because it's basically giving you instructions. Because remember I told you you get different options? You know, you can give an ox or you can give a lamb. You can give a bull or you can give a goat. It's basically giving you the same instructions for the priest as to how to sacrifice an ox versus how to sacrifice a goat. So it's very similar, but we're going to read it right now because I want you to notice when the peace offering is described, I want you to notice the words that describe that keep coming up, all right? Leviticus chapter 3, look at verse 6. Notice what it says. And if his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering unto the Lord be of the flocks, okay? I want you to notice that word flocks. If you don't mind writing in your Bible, maybe you ought to underline that word. Flock. Male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. 
If he offer a lamb, in verse 7, it, you underline, write, uh, underline that word lamb. I want you to notice, we got flocks, we got lambs. If he offer a lamb for his offering, then shall he offer it be, uh, before the Lord. And we already read in verse 1 where he says that you can offer a uh, from the herd. All right, So that's a bull, an ox, something like that. Notice verse 8. And he shall lay his hand upon the head of his offering and kill it before the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron's son shall sprinkle the blood. Notice the blood is brought up. You ought to underline that word blood. Thereof round about upon the altar. And he shall offer of the sacrifice of the peace offering an offering made by fire unto the Lord of the fat. Notice the word fat uh, is brought up in this, in this passage. The fat thereof and the whole rump it shall be, it shall he take of hard uh, by the backbone and the fat, notice the fat's mentioned, that covereth the inwards and all the fat that is upon the inwards. Notice verse 10. And the two kidneys. Alright. So what are the words that keep coming up? Kidneys. Fat. Blood. Lamb. Flock. Notice verse 10. And the two kidneys. And the fat. That is upon them. Which is by the flanks. And by the call. Above the liver. With the kidneys. It shall he take away. Notice verse 12. We read verse 11 already. And, it, and if his offering be a goat. Alright. So now we have a goat mentioned. Then he shall offer it before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand upon the head of it, and kill it before the tabernacle of the congregation. And the sons of Aaron shall sprinkle the blood, notice the blood is mentioned again, thereof upon the altar round about, and he shall offer thereof his offering, even an offering made by fire unto the Lord, the fat that covereth the inwards, and all the fat that is upon the inwards, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is upon them, which is by the flanks, and the call above the liver, with the kidneys it shall he take away, and the priest shall burn them upon the altar. It is food of the offering made by fire of a sweet savor. All the fat is of the Lord. So if I was going to ask you, how would you describe the peace offering? Here's how you describe it. Flock, lamb, blood, fat, kidneys. Uh, you know, that's the words that keep coming up. Kidney, blood, fat, fat, kidney, goat, flock, lamb. If that's how you describe the priest's offering. Leviticus chapter 3 is all about the priest's offering. Those are the words that keep coming up over and over in reference to that sacrifice. Go back to Isaiah 34. Now, we already saw that Isaiah 34 is about the battle of Armageddon, right? The stars are falling like figs. The the heavens are being rolled as a scroll. We have someone coming to do battle. He's got a sword. He's got blood. Now notice how Isaiah 34 and verse 6 pictures this battle, which we've already determined is the battle of Armageddon. Isaiah 34, verse 6. And the sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made fat with fatness and with the blood of lambs and goats with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord hath a sacrifice. See that word sacrifice? For the Lord hath a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edomia. All right. So in Isaiah 34 verse 6, the battle is described as a sacrifice. Now, if you had to take a guess, which sacrifice is it? Doesn't it match up with Leviticus chapter 3? I mean, look at the words that keep coming up in verse 6. Fat, fatness, blood, lambs, goats, fat, kidneys, sacrifice. All right? It's the peace offering. You say, how does, how does the battle of Armageddon picture the burnt, soft, uh, the burnt offering and the peace offering? Go back to Re Revelation 19 
And uh, we'll look at one last place in Revelation, then we'll look at two verses in Romans, and we'll be done. Revelation 19. Here's what you need to understand. Remember, what did we know about the, the burnt offering and the peace offering? We know that the peace offering is similar and yet different than the burnt offering. We know that the peace offering is connected to and always follows the burnt offering. We know that the peace offering provides fellowship after the burnt offering provides reconciliation. We know the peace offering offers uh, uh, and the burnt offering both illustrate New Testament concepts. We already saw how the burnt offering represented the Lord Jesus Christ, His soul being wholly given, completely sacrificed and burnt up in hell while His body was up top, uh, buried in the earth, and that and He was brought up three days before the corruption. We already saw that illustration with the burnt and the peace offering. How does it match up to the battle of Armageddon? Here's what you need to understand. In verse 9, the Bible tells us something interesting about the battle of Armageddon. Revelation 19, verse 9. And he saith unto me, okay, we've already read about the battle of Armageddon. We're going to go uh, up in the chapter, verse 9. And he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto, notice, the marriage supper. Now, we're not from the south, so maybe Brother Luke can help us. What's supper? What's, where's Brother Luke? Is he here? What's supper? Dinner. Dinner, right? Now notice, the marriage dinner of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, these are the true sayings of God. Here's what I want you to say. What happens at the battle of Armageddon? Here's what happens. You're there in Revelation 19, and you know, I didn't write down the, the I didn't put it in my notes, so let me find it real quick. Look at verse, look at verse number 21. Just look at verse 21. And the remnant, because he already took care of the beast and the false prophet. And the remnant, no, well, you know what, let me just, let me, uh, look at verse 19, just, just so you can see the context. And I saw the beast, okay, that's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth. Because remember, the Antichrist unites the world under one world government. He's the head. So it's the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies. Isn't that Isaiah 34? The nations gathered together, all right? And their armies gathered together to make war against Jerusalem. Is that what it says? No. A bunch of dispensationalists today, like John Hagee, will try to teach you that the battle of Armageddon is the Antichrist coming to war against Jerusalem. No, no, no. The battle of Armageddon is the Antichrist and the world coming to war against the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. What happens to all the armies that came to fight with the beast and the false prophet? Look at verse 21. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. The battle of Armageddon is fought by Jesus opening his mouth, and the sword comes out of his mouth. You say, what is that talking about? And I didn't write down the reference, and I wish I would have, and I apologize. But we saw it recently, I think it was several weeks ago, we saw it in another sermon where the Bible teaches that when Jesus comes to this earth, what comes out of his mouth is fire. The Bible even refers to the word of God as fire. 
And here's what happens. All the armies of the Lord are gathered together in a valley called the Valley of Armageddon. And Jesus comes down, opens his mouth, fire comes out of his mouth, and he consumes them all as a big burnt offering. But you can't give a burnt offering without a peace offering. The peace offering is the meal, so then what does he do? Then he takes the saints, and he has the marriage supper of the Lamb, and they have a meal together. And they fellowship together. And they, and they eat together, just like in the Old Testament, they gave the burnt sacrifice, then they gave the peace offering, and they ate together. They gave God his plate, and then they uh, gave the, the priest his plate, and they, the people took food, and they fellowshiped around the burnt offering. The Bible says, in the end times, the, the battle of Armageddon will be a big, major burnt offering, and after that, we will have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And today, people will argue a lot. They'll argue, you know, is the marriage supper of the Lamb connected to the battle of Armageddon? Are they connected? Are they two different things? Look, we learn from the burnt offering and from the peace offering that both offerings are given together. And in fact, one is given above the other. And they're connected. So yes, you know, both are right. Are, are the, is, is, the burnt, is the battle of Armageddon different than the marriage supper of the Lamb? Yes. Are they connected? Yes. Are they done at the same time? Yes. The answer is yes to all those questions. Why? Because the marriage supper of the Lamb pictures or is pictured through the peace offering. The battle of Armageddon itself pictures the burnt offering. And here's what we know about the peace offering and the burnt offering. The peace offering is similar and yet different to the burnt offering. And the peace offering is connected to and always follows the burnt offering. And the peace offering provides fellowship after the burnt offering provides reconciliation. And the peace offering offers and the burnt offering offers an illustration for us of the first and second coming of Christ. The first time when he was a sacrifice, his soul went down to hell, and he offered his soul as a burnt sacrifice. And his body three days later was resurrected that it might not see corruption, picturing the peace offering. And then we see it again at his second coming when he offers the armies of the, of the world and the kings of the world as a big burnt offering. And then we have the peace offering with the Lord Jesus Christ. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And we fellowship with Him. And of course, you know, the book of Revelation, what's the next step? We go into the millennial reign. He sets up His kingdom. And we have a thousand years to reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. I know, I know the sermon tonight was a lot of just theology and, and, and looking at these things. But, you know, the, the God gives us these books for a reason. And we ought to learn them and study them out and try to comprehend them. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to uh, be able to understand these things, Lord, and uh, realizing that the story of Jesus is found throughout all the books of the Bible ought to give us confidence that this book was not written by man. And that it is God that gave us this book. And we are to study it and to learn it and to be encouraged by it. We love you, Lord. In your precious name I pray. Amen.